Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. This is the sixth week of our series called What Happens When We Worship, and we're looking at what God does through the various aspects and elements of our worship. So uh, if you were around for the first week, and, and no worries if you weren't, the first week of this series, I kind of set it up by saying I think sometimes when we come together as God's people, we think only in terms of what we're doing for God, singing to Him, praising Him, listening to His Word, giving, and so on, praying, and we don't think as much in terms of what God is doing in us and through us when we gather. So we're taking a break from our normal approach, which is a, an expositional approach, working our way through books of the Bible, one book at a time. And we're in this series called What Happens When We Worship. Last week, Pastor Adam very skillfully showed us from the text what God does when we serve. And this morning, we're going to look at another aspect of our gatherings, looking to see how God is at work uh, through it. How would you answer if I asked you the question, what is the most challenging part of being a Christian? Now, I, re I realize that would probably change based on where you're from and, you know, what you've lived through and so on. In fact, Janine and I and Julia were just with uh, some missionaries, some pastors uh, about a week and a half ago, one from Vietnam, one from Indonesia, one from uh, North India, and another from Myanmar, and they told stories of incredible persecution. Uh, one guy, one pastor had had his house burned down three times by radical Hindus. Um, another pastor shared that he'd been in prison for five months because of his uh, allegiance to Christ, professing Christ. And so when I ask you the question, what's the most difficult part of being a Christian? You know, it all depends, I guess, on where you live and what you've been through. And maybe what you're thinking is, well, the way that I am perceived by others, the labels that, I'm, that are placed on me. And maybe you think uh, the most difficult part of being a Christian is trying to stand up to cultural pressures, all these pressures to conform to cultural norms. Or maybe you think the most challenging part is being rejected by my own family. Of course, those are very difficult things. Let me ask it a different way, really a different question. What would you say is the most difficult thing to do as a Christian? Now, maybe you think sharing my faith. It's just so hard for me to tell other people about Jesus. I don't know if I'm going to be received or rejected or how they're going to respond, and so that's very difficult to me. Uh, maybe you say it's hard for me to just be in the Bible every day, to have a regular rhythm of, of reading the Scriptures. I get so busy and, and, and caught up in other things that I don't even think about the Bible. Well, for many of us, what we might say, the most difficult thing to do as a Christian is to pray. Regularly, faithfully, undistractedly. Um, I think it's a challenge that Christians have faced uh, over the years. Um, Martin Luther said that prayer is the hardest work of all, a labor above all labors, since he who prays must wage a mighty warfare against the doubt and murmuring excited by the faint-heartedness and unworthiness we feel within us. Martin Luther said this before there were smartphones and, and Apple Watches and so on. And I would argue that it's become harder to pray now than at any time in, in redemptive history um, because we have more distractions now than we've ever had in history. With our devices at our sides, we never stop doing things. We're always uh, ready to respond, always have something uh, you know, alerting us to 
what we must do. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm no Luddite, which is just a person who is anti-technology. I think there are incredible benefits of technology. I, I, I love technology and uh, appreciate uh, many of the benefits. But here's what's happened. We have amalgamated so many cultural values to the way that we live in our world today. And one of those values is speed. So we want what we want immediately. We want it right now. We're not really willing to wait for anything. It's hard to wait. We're not interested in persisting, and we're certainly not interested in a delayed response. This is why uh, I, have, I have the red receipt option on my, uh, my iPhone turned off. Because I know if someone sees that I have read their text to me, then there will be an, a, 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 an expectation that immediately there will be a response. And, you know, that's not always uh, feasible. We want instant responses, and yet the Scriptures are clear that God works in His own timing, and He actually works as we persist in prayer. God does something through prayer that He doesn't do apart from prayer. So what happens when we pray? What does God do in us and through us and for us when we pray? We've been giving you the main point of these sermons at the very beginning and then kind of showing how we got there from the Scriptures. And so I want to give you the main point, and then we'll look at, again, how we got there with three subpoints. But here's the, the big idea, the main point. When we pray, God provides for our needs and for the needs of others according to His will and satisfies the longings of our hearts. This is what God does when we pray. He, he provides for our needs and for the needs of others according to His will, and He satisfies the longings of our hearts. This is what makes prayer so beautiful and such an indispensable part of the Christian life. So uh, we're going to be looking at Luke 18, 1 through 8, and it's, it's one parable or one story, so let me read it uh, all at uh, all together. So here reads the word of the Lord. And he told them, this he being Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by, the continue, by her continual coming. And that beat me down, it's kind of an interesting Greek word. It, it's a, it refers to getting a black eye. Like she, she, she's just going to wear me down and give me a black eye with this continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? As with all the parables, Jesus told this one in order to provoke a response or a reaction. If you, you read the New Testament and when Jesus will, would, he tells parables, sometimes people leave angry, sometimes they leave heartbroken, sometimes they leave pierced and repentant. And so the, the, the parables are meant to generate a response. It's not just simply academic teaching, but to, again, to elicit a certain emotive response. And the parables are really 
each parable is meant to communicate one point primarily. Now, there was about a 1,200-year span between the 2nd century and the 13th or 14th century when parables were looked at from an allegorical perspective. In other words, um, every single element in the parable was, was meant to or understood to convey or represent a particular thing. Um, like, for example, the trees were the Gentile nations, and the leaves were the human race, and the sky was the Holy Spirit, and uh, the earth uh, was uh, sin, and the river was the blood of Christ. And so there was, a, again, about 1,200 years or more when we looked at the parables and we said, okay, every single person has to, every single thing in the parable has to represent something else. But we, we've since come to realize um, with the historical critical method and other things that that's not really the best way. Each parable kind of communicates one point, and there are exceptions to that. Um, but there's one single point here, and I've, I've already given it to you, but We'll show how that uh, plays out as we look into the text. And so this is a conversation between Jesus. We're picking up in the middle of it between Jesus and his disciples. Um, but it was one that was initiated by the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. And they wanted to know when the kingdom of God would come with all its fullness. And Jesus says to them, stop trying to figure that out. Stop worrying about when the kingdom will come. And instead, pray for it to come. There are two characters in this uh, parable, the judge who's introduced to us as a man who neither fears God nor respects other uh, human beings, um, and then the second character in the story is a helpless widow who ignores the harsh reputation of the judge, and she goes to him as her only recourse for the uh, dilemma that she's in. Now, it's important to point out a couple of things here. Even though the judge represents a, a God type, in this parable, we could say. Jesus is not making a one-to-one -one comparison here. The judge is a character that Jesus probably invents in order to create this comparison that illustrates the Lord's compassion and willingness to hear and respond to even the least of these. We might say it this way, there are ways that this judge symbolizes or gives us a picture of God, but there are ways that this judge is nothing like God at all. Let's consider the judge for a minute. He is a man with a reputation, and it's not a favorable one. He is a man who cannot be controlled or manipulated by others. He is a man who actually strikes fear in those, the hearts of those who would approach him. So people are reluctant to go to this guy because they know something about his character. He is a man who, in a technical sense, doesn't owe anything to anybody. The widow, on the other hand, is in every way a loser, according to the society in which she lives. Widows in first century Jewish culture were often young women who were married sometimes at 13 or 14 years old, and, and uh, they, they lost their husband at an early age. And it's likely that the, the widow in this parable had been wronged financially and had creditors constantly uh, pursuing her. Uh, if you ever had that happen, you know it's a, it's a very frightening feeling. Um, creditors were after her, and so she didn't know what she was going to do. Um, she's seeking relief from her creditors, but even more than her situation, this is important, Jesus in, intends to emphasize her status. Widows were the lowest and most helpless adults in first century Jerusalem. This is why, by the way, you see so many commands in the scriptures uh, for, uh, in the Bible to take care of, to defend, to protect, to look after widows. The widow in this story had no recourse, no place to turn for help. 
And so she kept pleading with the judge. And finally, we're told, despite his reputation and indifference, he gives in. The parables of of Jesus are often broken down into three categories. Parables of judgment, parables of the kingdom, and parables of grace. And this is, uh, by all accounts, a parable of grace. The judge in the story gives the woman something she has no claim to, something she has no right to demand, and in some ways, because of her standing in society, doesn't even have the prerogative to request. So she's way out of bounds here. But the judge gives her what she asks for. Here's a helpless and hapless widow with no leverage, nothing to bring to the judge, by which he should hear her and respond to her. And yet the judge pours out grace on her. He takes this woman and gives her justice and makes right her situation. He issues, in the words of the late theologian Robert Capon, a totally disreputable verdict. In other words, this verdict would have made no sense to anybody around. This verdict actually would have offended the sort of uh, the elite in society, the higher-ups. This verdict would have really... Uh, torque them off as they saw that this widow, who deserves nothing by their estimation, gets what she needs. The judge gives the woman something she doesn't deserve, forgiveness and reconciliation. And I mentioned that the parables were meant to provoke a reaction. Well, Jesus wants his people to know that that's precisely what God does for us. He gives us what we don't deserve. He forgives us a debt, a moral debt, that we have absolutely no ability to pay back. He reconciles us. He brings us back into good standing, though we have nothing to offer by which He should receive us. He offers, God offers to us salvation that we can only receive, that we can never earn. He sent His Son to die for our disobedience. He gives us Christ's clean record and takes our stained and rebellious record and puts it on Jesus Christ on the cross, and then he raises Jesus from the dead as as absolute evidence that Christ's payment for our sin was enough. This is what God does. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that there are two characters in the story, the judge and the widow. Well, even though the judge is a poor and, and incomplete picture of God, The widow is actually a much better picture of us. When it comes to climbing out of debt, in our case our moral debt, we are as helpless as this widow in the story and in desperate need of a salvation, of a forgiveness beyond our capacity to earn or our right to demand, frankly. About a week and a half ago, uh, my wife Janine and Julia, my daughter and I went to Southern California we were able to see all of our kids at one time. In fact, the whole eight of us, really, when you uh, include our daughter-in-law and, and granddaughter. And it was just an amazing time. We had a really sweet time. But, well, in order to get there, we flew out of Nashville because it's a lot cheaper. And you know, if you've done this, you, you know what I'm talking about. And we flew back into Nashville. Well, on the day that we flew back into Nashville, it was like we got back at early afternoon, as I recall. And, and when we got off the plane, we heard all these loud shouts, these loud noises. And it was a little off-putting at first. It was a whole bunch of people that seemed to be yelling in unison. Well, we, we walked down a little bit, and then we found out what it was. It was, even though it was early afternoon, there's a, a, an airport restaurant and bar 
And everybody in the restaurant was singing Garth Brooks's song, Friends in Low Places. So they're all just, just belting it out, some rather terribly, to be honest with you. Um, but they're just at the top of their lungs. Everybody, like everybody in that whole restaurant knew that song. And they're singing it um, together very uh, loudly. Friends in low places. It was kind of like something you might see on TV where everybody just all of a sudden stops what they're doing and, and joins in. Everybody in the restaurant knew friends in low places. Well, as Christians, we're actually the friends in low places. We have broken God's commands. We have zero resources to remedy the problem that we're under, namely God's wrath against us. We have incurred a moral debt because of our disobedience, and it's a debt we have no hope of ever repaying. We have completely insufficient funds in order to repay this debt. We've been swept up in the passions of the flesh and lusted and envied and fallen in love with other things. We continue to fall short of God's standard, which is perfection, as outlined by His holy and perfect law. We are in desperate need, like the widow was, of a pardon that we cannot execute on our own terms. This gathering this morning, as we come together, this is not a collection of really good people who come together to escape the evil world out there. This is a gathering of friends in low places, sinful, judgmental, broken people prone to wonder who fall completely short of God's standard. That's what we are. That's what we all are. And that's what this gathering is. It's not a gathering of perfect people or really good people. We've come together as sinful, imperfect people. And when we realize that, we're able to look beyond ourselves for help and appeal to a God who is merciful and gracious. See, to continue the Garth Brooks uh, metaphor, and I'm I'm not going to go too long with this, um, Jesus has friends in low places. They're called Christians. That's what they are. Only unlike the Garth song where the friends gather and I had to Google this because I didn't know the lyrics, but um, unlike the Garth song, where friend, which I know some of you is, uh, you know, that's sacrilegious, I guess, but um, unlike the Garth song where friends gather with other friends to drown their blues away in beer and whiskey, these friends gather to hear about the forgiveness that God offers in Christ and to boldly come to Him for aid and rescue, not because we deserve to, but because we have a God who has promised and demonstrated that He will hear us because of Jesus Christ. What we deserve is to be written off. What we deserve is eternal punishment. What we deserve is to be uh, ignored and cast away because of our sin against God. But God hears us, forgives us, and makes us His own regardless of our past and delights in responding to our prayers because of and through the person and work of Jesus. And it's the grace of God in salvation, the fact that He's giving us, given us everything we need in Christ, that actually gives us confidence that He will give us everything we need when we ask Him. So here's our first sub-point. The, generos- the generosity of God revealed in His gracious saving activity gives us confidence that He will continue to give us everything we need. And Paul says it so beautifully, the apostle, if He's, if he's given us His Son, if He sent His only Son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us, then can we also not be sure that He'll give us everything we need? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Of course we can. We know that the same God who spared not His only Son, 
will give us all that we need in Him. The fact that God has granted us forgiveness, the fact that God has given us a new heart, the fact that God has given us a new nature, He's given us a new status, the fact that God has given us the Holy Spirit, all of these things show us how generous He is and they reveal His heart, so to speak, wishes to deliver us and come to our rescue when we cry out to Him in faith. The judge, while he doesn't accurately represent God, he shows us something of the grace of God and how God views our persistence. But persistence is the key. Persistence is absolutely critical. When I was in the television industry and trying to make a move to a bigger market, I sent my resume to a prominent NBC station so in television, market size is everything. You know, you, you, the number one market is New York and L.A., Chicago, and so on. Then you get down to the, the very last market, which I think is like North Platte, Nebraska, or Juneau, Alaska, or something. Or, so, you, so there's like 220 markets. And just to give you an idea, Huntsville has kind of skyrocketed in the last 10 years to market number 79, which is you know, kind of crazy to think this city that we're in is the 79th biggest, biggest television market. Well, I was trying to make a 150 market jump, which was pretty much unheard of in the television industry. Um, so I sent my tape, just as hundreds of other people did, to this NBC station uh, for the sports reporter position, and I heard nothing. There was nothing at all. A week went by, two weeks went by, and I'm calling. I called every week. I said, hey, just want to let you know, sent my resume tape, um, and I had some pretty cool things on there. I'd, interviewed Deion Sanders and interviewed Mark McGuire and some other things and, you know, as an intern. And so I uh, really expected to, you know, to be noticed as it were, but uh, I got nothing. So I kept calling. I kept getting nothing. Um, and I had actually been on the other side as a sports director of a much smaller market. So I knew how this worked that, you know, you just don't, sports directors rarely even look at more than, you know, a handful of tapes. And so I kept calling and I kept calling. And finally, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to drive up there and I'm going to try to get past security, and I'm going to see if I can get this guy's attention. And I did. I, I showed up at the station. I somehow evaded security, and I saw the sports director in the hallway, walking in the hallway. I said, hey, hey. I said, hey, I, my name is John Sloan. I, I, just, I sent a resume tape to you, you know, a month or two ago, and he said, how'd you get in here? I said, I said well, I don't know. But uh, I convinced him to figure to look at my tape, and he looked at my tape, and he hired me. So he hired me there, uh, and I'm sure that it was just to get me off his back, but ended up, you know, by God's grace, making that jump. And Well, it was my persistence that so annoyed him that it was the catalyst to him acting. And this is the same way it was with the judge. He is callous and uncaring. He is annoyed by the request for help. But he helps out eventually anyway. Now, it's not the same way with the Lord. Please hear me say that. Jesus is using a, a Jesus actually likes to do this, a classic lesser to greater argument. And he's saying, if this guy, if this judge, who's known to be hard and harsh and uncaring, if he responds to persistence, then how much more your heavenly Father, who is perfect, will respond to our unyielding petitions. And I say he, Jesus likes the lesser to greater argument. He uses it elsewhere too. You may recall when he, he's talking about the value of prayer in a different section, he says, look, how many of you, if your son says he's hungry, 
and ask for a piece of bread, you're going to give him a rock or a stone. He says, no, you're not going to do that. Well, how much more will our Heavenly Father, who's perfect, respond to our petitions? So it's because God is very unlike the judge that we can trust that he will hear and respond to our prayers. And it's not because we wear God down, because God is indefatigable, he never gets tired. It's because he loves us with a perfect love and deeply desires to come to the aid of his needy children. Here's the second subpoint, if you will, if you're taking notes. Moved by our desperation, God responds to the persistence of his children. God is not, as the ancient Greeks said, this unmoved mover who doesn't care about creation, who doesn't, who's unaware and unconcerned about the plight of his people. No. Moved by our desperation, God responds to the persistence of his children. Now, a quick disclaimer here, which I think is necessary. When I say that God re- responds to our persistence, I'm not saying as those of the those preachers of the prosperity gospel that if you're not getting what you want from God it's necessarily because you're not trying hard enough and if you try hard enough you will sort of bend God's will or twist his arm and you'll get what you want that's not what I'm saying at all what I am saying though is that God loves us his children in a way that we can't even fully fathom and think about this those of us who are parents and how we love our own children God loves us more than we love our own children. God loves our children more than we love our children because He is perfect. And we saw from our study in 1 John that God is love. And when we cry out to Him, He hears us. He delights in coming to our rescue. Jesus Himself says in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. And this is not an asking of indifference, but a pleading with God to hear the way the psalmist did, who said in Psalm 55, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. I wonder how desperate we are in our prayer lives. I wonder what sense of urgency we employ in our prayer lives. Now, the immediate context of Luke 18 calls for the prayer of a prayer of deliverance, but there's more to it than just a cry for justice, although that's important. Uh, New Testament scholar Norval Geldenhoys, there's a name for you expecting mothers, Norval, um, he says, the Savior teaches that believers should persist in prayer knowing that he will indeed come at the right time and answer their supplication by destroying the powers of evil and by causing his chosen ones to triumph. The parable, however, has a more general meaning, namely that the faithful should persevere in prayer with regard to all other matters when the answer is not immediately granted. So we look at our world now and we see the oppression, we see the injustice, we see the poverty, we see the racism, we see uh, the anger and conflict that people experience and have toward one another. And in God's good timing, 
God is going to make right. He's going to make right everything that's wrong with this broken world. And we pray for that. This is why often when I pray, I end my prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. The Lord's going to bring about justice for those who have been wrong, for those who are hurting, for those who have been mistreated. And we pray for that tirelessly. And we also pray for the salvation of our friends, the health of our family members, for provisions for the needy, for widows in their distress, for wisdom for our country's leaders, for a revival in our own country. We pray for all of those things knowing that God hears us and He answers us according to His will. And when we do that, not only does He answer us, but He allows us to experience more of Himself, so to speak. He satisfies the longings of our hearts. Last Sunday, I mentioned we were in Southern California, and we went to church with my son and daughter-in-law and granddaughter. And, um, and I noticed when I got in, the, the pastor was preaching through the book of Acts, which we covered a couple years ago. Of course, just an amazing book. And, um, and then I noticed they, had on the, they have a, a, a printed worship order, and it had all the songs on there. The title of the sermon, I think, was A Call to Suffer. And then one of the songs on there was, was What a Friend We Have in Jesus, right? which is a, you know old hymn. But I immediately thought to myself, because that, that hymn is fine, but there is a line in there that says, we should never be discouraged, right? We should never be discouraged. And I just thought, I mean, what are they going to do with this? In other words, we should, this is a call to suffer and a song that says we should never be discouraged, which is not really biblical at all, that line at least. And, I know, and when we got to that song, they had changed it to Jesus is our only refuge. It didn't rhyme, but it, it was more theologically right. And so I, I was thinking, like, what are they going to do with this? Well, the thing is, you know, this idea that we should never be discouraged, always be happy, always be smiling and so on, that's actually not biblical. Yeah, we, we are to consider it joy, James says, when we face various trials and temptation. We are to be a joyful people, but we will endure hardship. We will endure suffering. We will, we will suffer grief. And what God's calling us to do is not to just smile and act like everything's okay. What matters is how we actually deal with our discouragement. And what God tells us is when we persistently cry out to Him in desperation, not only does He hear us and provide for us our needs, but He also enables us to delight in Him by virtue of restoring that relationship. He surrounds us with His comforting presence. He satisfies our souls with Himself. I had, I don't know what caused it, but earlier in the week, I think it was Tuesday, I just felt kind of blah, you know, and, uh, and I'm, by God's grace, I'm, I'm normally pretty much like this, maybe like this a little bit. I don't have a lot of this, but I was just not, you know, I just wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't feeling it, and uh, and so I got down on my knees like I do in the mornings at my couch, and I just prayed, and I had an extended time of prayer, and the Lord was just so gracious and kind to me. When I got up off my knees, I felt so refreshed spiritually. I felt joy. I was encouraged by the time that I spent with the Lord. And we see this throughout Scripture, that God responds to the cries of His, of His children, and it's not, of course, primarily because we are persistent. It is primarily because God is gracious. In fact, it's that point of application that Jesus seems to be making in verses 6 and 7. Look at that again. And the Lord, this is Jesus, the Lord said, 
Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Jesus says, if an unjust judge finally grants this helpless widow's request, then how much more can we trust our loving Father to respond to the children He has chosen, His elect, that He's bought with a great price, those who cry out to Him day and night? Jesus says, oh, He will give them justice, and He will do so speedily. Here's our final sub-point. God never sits idly by while His children cry out to Him for help. It may feel like it at times, but he never sits idly by. God's love for his own, his love for his own prompts him to act on their behalf. When his children cry out to him for help, he actually delights, and there's so many great pictures of this in the Old Testament, delights in coming to their rescue. Jesus makes it very clear that it is through our prayers that God comes to our assistance. Prayer is the vehicle through which God pours out His grace and His power in our situation. With there, when there's no prayer, we lack the necessary power to accomplish anything of any value. Because without prayer, we operate in our own strength. And what can we really do anyway? Can we change someone's heart? Can we reconcile a broken relationship? Can we repair a marriage where the two people are at vicious odds with each other? Can we grant someone faith? Can we extend our lives for one moment we want beyond what God has given us? No, we can't do any of those things. We can't do anything. But our dependence on God, even with that intellectual recognition, is so easy to forget because we're so busy doing things, we're so busy producing, we're so busy responding to texts and emails and messages and voicemails and, ch- and clicking off our to-do list and so on. It's, it's hard for me to really to, to admit this, but I know it's true because of the way I'm wired. It's, it's, it's hard for me to understand even, but how much more would we accomplish if we left a few things on our to-do list undone Because we are on our knees before the Lord, begging Him for His help and assistance. I think we'd actually be far more productive. Again, it's a hard lesson to learn and one that I'm I'm still learning every day. Uh, John Calvin says, We know that perseverance in prayer is a rare and difficult attainment. And it is a manifestation of our unbelief that when our prayers are not successful, we immediately throw away not only all hope, but all the ardor of prayer. That's a word that just means passion, intensity, determination. Now, someone might say, well, you, you said that God never sits idly by when His people cry out to Him to help for help, but I've prayed for things for years that I've never seen answered. And I can say to you, I, I understand. I have too. I've prayed for people to get well, for physical healing for people, only to have officiated their funeral not long after that. I prayed for God to save unbelievers in my own family, only to see them constantly and consistently reject Christ. But the fact that God, we don't see what we perceive to be an immediate response does not mean that God is not acting in our behalf. 
Prayer is the ultimate act of submission. It's our concession that even though we want what we want, we desire God's will more than anything else. And so we're going to keep asking over and over and over and keep confessing, let your will be done. And there's a tension there. I realize it's, God, here's what I'm asking you to do for me. And we go unreservedly and boldly and persistently. God, I'm asking you to do this, but let your will be done. But still, this is what I'm asking for you to do, but let your will be done. And there's that tension. We, we go, uh, we ask God, we, we bring our request before. Prayer is petitionary. It's God's people bringing their request before Him. And even if the answer is what appears to be no, we praise Him for His wisdom. But again, we keep embodying that tension. But some people look around and they say, some people say, well, I pray for these things and, and I'm just not getting answers, so it must be the case that God doesn't answer prayer. Well, there's a great parallel illustration, I think, that helps with this. In the early 1730s, God did something in the New England area, unlike anything that had happened in the country uh, before that. Uh, through men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who traveled around on horseback, the Spirit of God brought about these incredible revivals. And the revivals were so amazing, and the responses to the proclamation of the gospel was so severe that people were weeping, broken over their sin, people were crying, people were down, literally on their faces on the ground, crying out to God for deliverance. Um, hundreds of people at one time put their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, because of that, because of the extreme reaction, some people, beyond just weeping, some people started shaking. Because of the extreme reaction, there were some who began to say, look, this is, none of this stuff is legit. They probably didn't use the word legit back then, but none of this stuff is real, right? This is not, this is not true, uh, true conversion. And they angrily criticized the revivals, even to the point where they denied that conversion even existed. They said, no, no, this is, this is not true. This is not even, there's no such thing as a conversion like this. Well, about eight or ten years later, Jonathan Edwards responded, this is in 1740, with a sermon entitled, The Reality of Conversion, in which he argued that it was unwise to zero in on one person uh, for proof of the reality of conversion. But he, instead, he said, we have to consider the sheer number of people throughout all these villages and towns who have been radically and inexplicably changed. People who, have, who are at one point haters of Jesus, who have actually been willing to give their lives for Christ. Rebels and criminals, who, according to Edwards, appeared more like devils than men, who had been written off by family and friends, who were so seized with conviction that they became entirely different people by the work of the Holy Spirit. Rough, callous, hateful, angry uh, people who became soft-hearted, repentant, loving, joyful people, changed into obedient, humble Christ followers. And Jonathan Edwards would say to those people who were criticizing the revivals, they were called the old lights, he would say, let's not zero in on one person's experience. Look at all the people who have been radically changed through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a, a helpful way to look at prayer. Sometimes we zero in on one particular prayer that we think well, wasn't answered. But I think a better way to look at it is to look at all the ways that we've seen God answer prayer. Incredible ways that can only be the answer of the Lord. 
And I've seen it. I know you, I can think of prayers for salvation that in, in my flesh, in my weak, faithless heart, I thought, this, there's no, this person's never going to come to faith in Jesus. And God brought that person to saving faith. And now I see that person is a different person. I think of prayers, prayers for healing that I've seen God answer, prayers for reconciliation, prayers for jobs and provisions that people have brought before the Lord that He has clearly answered. I've had people in my office sitting on different sides of the same couch who were married but who hated each other, couldn't even look at each other in the face. And I've seen through prayer God bring them together, reunite them, and bring them to the place of oneness and intimacy for which marriage was designed. So rather than look at some isolated situation to determine if God answered, let's look at all the ways that that we've seen God answer prayer and say, yeah, He does so because of His love for us and because He delights in giving good things to those who belong to Him. Maybe what we need to do rather than give up when it seems like God hasn't responded is instead to double down to pray harder, to pray more persistently, to pray more desperately for that relationship in your life that's strained, for that person in your life who just, for whatever reason, just seems against you, for the family member who is unconverted, for that particular stressor in your life that just keeps waking you up at 2 a.m., for whatever it is that's on your heart and your mind and plaguing you, don't give up prayer. Pray harder. Pray with a greater urgency. Pray, to with, pray with a greater desperation. If you are in Christ, you have direct access to God, your Heavenly Father, and He promises that He will come to your aid. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't wrap up by saying this. It is possible that you're not seeing your prayers answered because you're not actually in relationship with the Heavenly Father. Jesus says in Matthew 18, it will not God give justice to His elect, to those who belong to Him? It could be possible that maybe you come to church every week and maybe you serve in a prominent ministry or maybe you're brand new to church or whatever it is, but you don't really know God. You've never turned in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and His work on the cross on your behalf. If that's the case, before you're concerned about how urgently you pray, you need to repent and believe. The trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And this is a bona fide offer to you this morning. If you don't know Christ, there is an offer today, right now, where you can repent and believe. Trust in Jesus Christ. Confess that, yes, I am a sinner. I am wholly imperfect and in need of a Savior. And I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. You took the burden of my sin. You took my shame and my guilt on the cross, and you were raised again on the third day. And I'm trusting in that, Jesus, in who you are and what you've done for my only hope for salvation. And God says that all who call out to the name on the name of Jesus will be saved. There's none who cries out to Jesus that God will turn away. So my prayer for us this morning is that we pray with a greater intensity and a greater boldness and a greater persistence. My prayer for you this morning is if you don't know Christ, repent, believe, and be made new. Let's pray.